1: Alright, good morning guys. <clears throat> Have a seat. Um, <clears throat> if you haven't already, turn to uh, Matthew chapter 6. We're going to uh, spend the next two weeks in our series in Matthew chapter 6. And let me remind you where we've been so far. Uh, we began a few weeks ago with uh, the opening of chapter 5. And we talked about how uh, the King's message is that of blessing. And Jesus lays out the actual heart of God, that, that His heart for His people is. Is not to punish um, or to withhold good things, but is actually to bless. And when we when we see God that way, when we view God that way, when we understand, listen, it isn't just do I emotionally understand that God wants to bless me, but is it do I uh, fundamentally in my mind and also in in my heart the course of my life do I believe that God wants to bless me? Because if I believe it um, in my mind and, and in my heart, if I'm committed to that then when my emotions don't follow and my emotions think that God isn't good or God doesn't care or I'm not good enough, like that's what will correct the emotions. Does that make sense? Like We have to allow the things that we know about God um, to filter um, our emotions or allow our emotions to be filtered through what we know about God. And this changes the way we respond to God. This changes the way that we live for God. This changes the way that we respond to God when we, um, when we sin, but also when we succeed. It frees us. And then we saw following that, that, that the king brings uh, a message of distinction. And, and we talked about the salt and the light and how um, <clears throat> citizens of God's kingdom should live in a way that reflects not just God's kingdom, but more importantly, that reflect the king of the kingdom. And that is a message of distinction. We should be different from the world. We should both do good deeds in the world, but we should also never hide why we believe in good deeds. We don't believe in good deeds because we're just humanitarians. We believe in doing good deeds because God Almighty has done good to us, right? And frees us from the bondage and and, and even the pressure of doing good deeds. It frees us from those things, and it frees us to do good deeds for the right reason, which is to glorify God. We looked at, believe um, uh, uh, it was Hosea, where um, God will fill the entire earth with his glory as the water covers the seas. And that's why we do good deeds, and that's why we're to live distinct. Distinct living brings the glory of God, and it covers the earth as the water covers the seas. And then last week, we looked at the message of righteousness and how King Jesus preached and brought and instructed his disciples in a message of righteousness. And we looked and we spent most of our time together looking at, at, at the actual, um, remember how Jesus says in uh, the chapter 5, verse 20, where he says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. And then, he, and then so he sets up this picture in his disciples' minds of righteousness, right? Because so now they're thinking the Pharisees, because Jesus already equated righteousness with the Pharisees. And then he goes and he begins to tell them, you have heard it said, which is insinuating the Pharisees' teachings, okay? He says, you've heard it said, uh, don't murder. And so they're thinking, okay, we still can't murder, nothing has changed. But Jesus throws a curveball and he says, but I say to you, if you hate, you've committed murder in your heart. And And you've heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I say to you, If anybody has looked lustfully at a woman, then you have committed adultery in your heart. And then he goes on to talk about marriage, and the only reason that Jesus gives for divorce is sexual impurity, but it was common practice then, as it is today, that we just divorce because we want to divorce. And then he talks about oaths and retaliation, and he he finishes it off. And listen, we have to understand this as we transition in today's message, but he finishes it off at the end of chapter 5, By telling them, he says, You have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. Now, none of us are able to obtain this righteousness that exceeds that of the Pharisees. Right? We're not. There is not a person in here who has never looked at a man or a woman and lusted. There's not a person in here, especially those that have siblings, like it's, it's a little easier, but there's not a person in here who has never hated, therefore committed murder. There's not a person in here who has always done what they said they would do when they said they would do it. And unless your righteousness exceeds that, you'll never inherit the kingdom of heaven. But then I closed last week by taking you back up to the beginning of chapter 5, excuse me, the beginning of the section we looked at, Chapter 5, verse 17, Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And that is our hope for eternity. That is our, that is our, that is our, our citizenship or our, our pathway into citizenship in the king's kingdom is that Jesus' righteousness exceeded that of the Pharisees. Jesus didn't come to earth and say God's old law is no good, it's bad, it's not righteous. Jesus actually says it is righteous. It is right. That is why it has to be fulfilled. And so Jesus did that on our behalf. And now listen, he sets this up at the end of five. And all of these things have to do in relationship with other people. Like Jesus just continuing to build on this message. It's one sermon, if you will. And so he opens in the introduction of His sermon about talking about God's heart to bless. And then he talks about a life of distinction. And then in, 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 it's... It flows that life of distinction of being salt and light flows right into his call to righteousness. Because you cannot, you can, you you must to to truly live a distinct life from the world. Then you have to abide by this righteousness, which is not just not murdering, but not hating, which is not just taking an oath by God or some other force, but by letting your yes be yes and your no's be no, which is not just not having a physical affair on your spouse but it's actually not even lusting after another person. And the good news of the gospel is that Jesus perfectly fulfilled the righteous, the good, the right requirements of God's law. And he imputed that to us on the cross. Remember, he didn't gift it to us. It's not a gift. It's imputed. And we looked at last week how that word imputed means that it's actually counted as mine. Like Jesus' righteousness is given to those who believe in such a way that we don't just go in and and God doesn't look at us and say, oh, that's my son's righteousness. He looks at us and says, my son is righteous. My daughter is righteous. Because Christ's righteousness was imputed or or given on account or credited to me as if I had done it. And that is the good news of the gospel. And now this morning, we're going to talk about a message of action, how now the king brings a message of action. And here's the lie that the world wants us to believe. Here's the lie that, if I'm honest, that we just want to believe because it's easier. And that is this, that my apathy towards living for God is okay since at some point I raised my hand. At some point I responded. And I don't have to worry about the way I live now because I raised my hand or I came forward. Here's another form of that lie. My apathy is okay because God's just happy that I chose his team. And you see, we believe in the sovereignty of man versus the sovereignty of God. And we think, you know what? God doesn't have the right to call me to live this way. He should just be thankful that I chose him. I chose to be on his team. And whether or not we would, I mean, I would hope that as, as you know, we hear these lies, we immediately say, I, I don't, I, that's a lie. I don't believe that. Then when we look at our hearts, when we look at the way we treat one another, when we look at the way we actually live before a perfect and holy God, we see that the reality is, is a lot of times we do believe these things. Although we would never intellectually agree with them, right? We we fundamentally and we practically oftentimes live these lies. But here's the truth: the king's message calls his people, to engage in his kingdom's purposes. I've often posed it to you over the last four years this way. Why is it that God didn't just take you immediately to heaven when you got saved? Wouldn't that have been easier? Like, we think that that's the end result. We think that that's the goal, right? If that were the goal, then the moment of belief, at the moment of conversion, the moment of of justification, then God would have just vacuumed us up right but that's not how it is and it's not that way for a reason in Ephesians chapter 4 the apostle paul says that it is the saints it is the members of the church who do the work of ministry that is every single one of us it's actually he says it's the body the body of Christ every member has a purpose in the body of Christ every member is called every believer whether you're an actual member of a church or not, it doesn't negate you from the instruction to be active in the work of ministry. And 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, Peter says this. It had to have rocked his reader's um, life because he says this he says, You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood. See, that doesn't mean much to us. Because most of us, our only understanding of the priesthood is the Catholic Church, right? And so, because we're not Catholic, we understand that there's some problems with that. But for these people, the priesthood was the way that God administered His grace to the people in the Old Testament. It was a big deal. It was an extreme honor to be the high priest that would be able to go into the, 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 the Holy of Holies in the Old Testament tabernacle and be able to offer before God. See, before Christ... God's people didn't have direct um, communication and and relationship with God. It was through the priests. God's Spirit didn't reside inside of every person who followed God. That's why it's so important when we read the Old Testament. It says, and God's Spirit was upon him. It was was distinct. They were holy. They were set aside. That's what holy means. But now that Christ has come... And on the cross we read that as he the the veil that separated the innermost part that only the high priest could go to that separated from the meeting area was torn top to bottom at the moment that Christ died. Teaching us, telling us that we don't need a priest to go before us now. That God's Spirit dwells in each person who believes. And so, when Peter says that you're a chosen race, you're a royal priesthood, these Jews are thinking exactly of the priesthood that they grew up knowing and learning about and following. They're thinking of the lineage of Aaron and the call and all of the work, all of the work that the priests were to do on behalf of the people. And now Peter says, That is you now. He says, You're a chosen race. It's not just the Levites anymore. It's all of God's people. You're a chosen race, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim. Why are you for God's own possession? Why are you a holy nation? Why are you a royal priesthood? Why are you a chosen race? Peter tells them, and by way he tells us, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That is the call to action. That is the proof to the truth that we are called to live for God's purposes. You are a, uh, um, a chosen uh, race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. All of that, you're a people for his own possession. All of that creates for us a picture of being set aside for a special purpose. We all have special possessions that we set aside for special purposes. I remember as a kid baseball was life and there were certain times that I would not let my brothers use certain things because it was special to me and my brother had a tendency of losing everything that he touched. I didn't want that lost. It's special to me. In fact just a few years ago I got a glove back that he said he lost seven years ago. He didn't know where it was the whole time it was in his garage. But it was special to me. And that's the picture that Peter is painting for his audience here, is that we are a special people. We are set aside. We're to be different. We're not to be defiled by the world. You know, one of the most common questions that Christians ask, or I guess one of the most common things that that they struggle with, is this idea of what is God's will for my life? What does God want of me? And some of that is from a good place because we want to please God. We want to live right before God, right? Like, it starts at a good place, but as many of us know, what can easily start at a, at a good, holy, righteous, God-fearing place quickly can turn into idolatry. And we go from wanting to live a pleasing life unto God to wanting to understand everything that's going to happen so that we can control it and figure out the most comfortable way to go through it. But God's will for your life is simple. Know that when he chose you, he set you aside so that you would live for him. That's it. What job do I take? I don't care. Love God. Understand that he set you aside for a reason. Live for him in whatever job you take. Do you realize that the most un-evangelized, un-evangel- uh, evangel- what's the word, evangelized. least evangelized, mission-filled in our country is the workforce. Because every week we leave this building and we go to work. There's numerous jobs. Nobody, uh, okay, two of us here work at the same place. Everybody else represents an entire different group of people that they work with. And rather than seeing our lives and our calling to be people that are set aside, yes, do we provide for our family? Absolutely. But that isn't necessarily the primary reason you're where you're at. You're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now listen, God has not only justified us, but he also sanctifies us as we live for him. Don't separate it. You see, sanctification, the process, let me, let me take it back, the design, God's design for sanctification is that it happens as we are actively living out this, this calling to do the work of ministry as the saints or this calling as a royal priesthood. That's how God's process of sanctification is most effective in our lives. Paul Tripp, in his book, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hand, writes this. He says, God never intended for us to simply be the objects of his love. We are also called to be the instruments of that love in the lives of others. The overall biblical model is this God transforms people's lives as people bring his word to others. You want to call people in a meaningful way to live for God and to rely on God's Spirit? then live a life that requires God's Spirit. Because then when you talk about the faithfulness of God in the midst of persecution and struggle, you'll be speaking from a place of experiencing God's faithfulness in the midst of of struggle and trials. Doesn't that matter so much more when somebody gives you advice because they've walked through it? Like even on a non-spiritual level, right? Right? That's something that we understand as a people, is you can speak to this because you've gone through it, and there's, there's, some, there's some collective understanding and pain together. But God never intended us for simply to be the objects of his love. We are also called to be the instruments of that love in the lives of others. You see, this keeps the gospel not just being about me. It's not a gospel of me, right? It's God's gospel to renew and redeem all of his creation, We have to have a bigger picture of God and His purposes. Are you a part of that purpose? Yes. Will God complete the work that He promised, that He started in you? Yes, He will. And your way of cooperating with God's sanctification in your life is by living for Him, abandoning the world, living for His kingdom, declaring His excellencies. Now, this morning in Matthew chapter six, as we look at these eighteen verses, uh, before we actually look at the spiritual practices that Jesus talks about in here, I, I think we need to stop and kind of take a bigger look at this and understand that there's there's three components to the King's message of action. Three components, as we as we kind of look at these verses and we look at them all together rather than just individually. This is how I see it. The first component is this: there is a warning. There is a warning. Where do I see that? Chapter 6, verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. You see, Jesus follows up his message of righteousness and his message of distinction by immediately his transition is is a warning. Beware. Beware that as you forgive others, that as your yes is yes and you do what you say all the time, as you do not lust, beware that you're not doing that so that other people will see you and recognize you for it. Beware that you don't become the example that you try and call people to live according to. But you set an example of the king and you call people not to live for you and in your shadow and be like you, but you call people to be like the king. You're quick to acknowledge that any good that people see in you is God's grace, God's grace alone. Because if you were left to yourself, there's no way that you would selflessly go out of your way to provide for somebody else's needs. Most of us wouldn't go as far as getting off the couch for other people if God had left us alone in our sin and our folly. You see, Jesus gives, in these 18 verses, Jesus gives five warnings. Five warnings about being prideful and self-righteous in our good deeds. Why did Jesus see fit to give these warnings? Because he knew that it was probable that it was going to happen. These aren't vain warnings. These aren't things that we don't relate with and don't say, you know what, I don't need to hear that. Right? As we live for a glorious, miraculous, sovereign God who does things that blow our mind, we must beware that we acknowledge that it is Him who is doing it and not just our own goodness. You see, there is a great danger in doing good deeds, and that danger is self righteousness. Why is being self righteous so dangerous? Have you thought about it? Here's why. If we are satisfied with our own righteousness, we have no need for the righteousness of Christ. We can become so self-righteous in the way that we live, in the way that we think, in the way that we treat other people, that we don't need Jesus to fulfill the law and prophets for us because we have done it. And we are quick to find people around us who appear to be failing at it. And it makes us feel better about our righteousness. It makes us feel that, man, we must be really holy. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, Paul says, What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? He's correcting the Corinthian church. Everything that you have, everything that you have, God has given to you. So why do you walk and act and talk and treat people as well as your possessions as if you did not receive them from God? That's what he's saying. In Romans 15.8, Paul says this, "says For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. You see, righteousness distinguishes between intellectual acknowledgement of God and heart-level faith in God. There are a lot of people that say, I believe in God. There are a lot of people that will even go as far as saying, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that there's sin, and I know that only God uh, provides salvation from sin. The Bible is full of examples. I mean, the most, the most, um, one that jumps off the page right away is Jesus. At the end of days, there's going to be people that say, "Uh, God, Jesus, we we cast demons out in your name. We healed the sick in your name. We fed the, the poor and the needy in your name. They all believed, they had an intellectual acknowledgement and agreement with the things of God. But Jesus says to them, get away from me, I never knew you. You see, they had, they, had, they had never placed their fate, the fate and the well-being of their present as well as their eternity in the work of Jesus Christ. And that is evident in their response to him. We did this, we did this, we did this. It's self-righteous. They had no need for the righteousness of Christ because in their eyes they had fully fulfilled the law perfectly by their deeds. Although we must have an intellectual understanding and the Bible calls us to know what it is that we believe and why we believe it, it is not enough. We must not only know what we believe and why we believe it, but we must place our fate our entire well-being of our lives, of our future, of our present, of our finances, of our families, in what we believe. That's the difference. And that's this message of action. And we must understand that as Jesus calls us, as his people, to do good deeds, in fact, Philippian tells us that God ordained, predestined good deeds before the foundation of the earth that we would walk in them. The good deeds that we do, any good deeds that we do, God has, has predestined to happen before the foundation of the earth. We are simply walking in what he has already called us to. But we must be careful. We must recognize that the reason we do good deeds is not because we are good people, but because God preordained that we would do these good deeds for his glory and that these good deeds have an ultimate purpose and that ultimate purpose is not the gospel of rich or the gospel of whoever you are but it's the gospel of Jesus. Now the second component to this message is not only is there a warning but there's also a promise. In verses 4, 6, 14 and 18 so there's four verses that all promise a reward when good deeds are done with pure motives. Not just that good deeds are done but when good deeds are done with pure motives. There's a reward now, he doesn't tell us what the reward is, okay? So we don't want to read too much into it, but what we can look at is when we look at the original language, the word for reward, I think a lot of times, because, I don't, I don't know why, a lot of times when we hear reward, we only think eternity, which we need to think more along those lines. Jesus calls us to lay up our treasures in eternity and not on earth. But this, this word reward actually... Uh, is the same word used for a, a, a worker who gets paid for his work. So it insinuates, this paints a picture for us, that not only will we receive the eternal reward, but we will also be rewarded here on earth when we do good deeds for the right reasons. And I would propose to you that there is no better reward for your good deeds than seeing a, a, a lost person saved. Or, or, or watching Sitting and watching in amazement as God draws people out of darkness into his marvelous light, as First Peter says. There's nothing more amazing. There's nothing more rewarding than, than sitting with people who are young and immature in their faith and sitting with them and, and walking with them and working with them and seeing them mature right before your eyes as you know your own sinfulness. <laughs> it doesn't make sense. There is no greater reward, but there is a promise. So we must understand that, remember, this goes back to our, the opening of our Sermon on the Mount season, uh, series, that, that, that God is a God who blesses, He rewards people who faithfully and diligently follow Him. But He says there is a reward when you do these things in secret. And that's where we begin to struggle. That's where we begin It's a struggle. And this is where we again begin to to talk about self-righteousness versus righteousness, pure righteousness. See, we don't want to do it in secret. We want to be praised. We want to go when we tell our Christian brothers and sisters about the work we've been doing in our mission field that is our our vocation. We want them to praise us for being faithful. We want them to praise us for the, the gift of evangelism that God has given us. We want that. Sometimes more than we actually want the gift of evangelism to bear fruit in the lives of those we are evangelizing. So do it in secret. But there is a promise that when we do it for the right reasons, that God will indeed give a reward. Now, the third um, component here this morning is that the four spiritual principles that Jesus talks about is there's an assumption. That's the third component is that there's an assumption. You see, Jesus doesn't tell us to do these four principles. Jesus assumes that we're going to be doing these four principles. You see, written into the very DNA of being saved is living for the king. It's an assumption. Right? There is no opt-out clause. Like, we don't get saved, and then at the moment of salvation, we enter one of two lines. This line is to be active in mission. This line is to just wait for eternity. It's not an option. You see, either, listen, either you are an effective missionary disciple maker, or you're a failing missionary disciple maker. That's it. That's where we fall. See, there is no checkbox for God to save my eternity but to leave my life alone. That's his call to action. And you see, this message of action is more about how we are to faithfully perform these spiritual disciplines than it is about instructing us to do these spiritual disciplines. Now, of course, we need to teach those young in the faith to do these disciplines. Absolutely. Absolutely but the warning is that we must be careful in how we do how we practice these disciplines ourselves and how we instruct and disciple others in these disciplines because there is a right way and a wrong way to pray. Did you know that? There was a right way and a wrong way to give. There's a right way and a wrong way to fast. There's a right way and a wrong way to forgive. And so Jesus is called to action is to practice these spiritual disciplines in purity. Not seeking to exalt yourself above others or not seeking to make a name for yourself and give yourself a platform so everybody would know you and want to follow you, but so that your Father in heaven would receive glory. Now, what are the four spiritual disciplines? In the rest of the few minutes I have, I want to walk through the four spiritual disciplines that the king warns, rewards, and assumes his people will be about. Now, obviously, we're not going to cover these at length, so I encourage you, actually, throughout this week, to study on your own uh, these, this section of Scripture, Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 18. And there's also a, a really good, if you struggle um, in spiritual disciplines, and you struggle in doing them purely, then let me recommend a book to you called Disciplines of Grace by Jerry Bridges. Disciplines of Grace by Jerry Bridges. It is a grace-fueled book and instruction on spiritual disciplines. It has been huge uh, in my own personal life. But the first spiritual discipline is giving. Look at verses 2 through 4. Jesus says, Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Now, here's the thing that we must understand. There is a reward for giving the wrong way. Jesus says that when you sound a trumpet or when you let everybody know how much you're giving, there's a reward. And that reward is that people will esteem you. People will look at you and say, man, that guy is a giver. I wish I made that much money to give. or I wish I could give that sacrificially. Right? So, so, this is Listen, this is, the, this is the thing with all sin. All sin promises a reward. Hating people can be very fulfilling. And I would imagine that actually murdering them could, for a moment, be even more fulfilling. Committing to somebody that you're going to do something or be somewhere at a certain time, and then not doing it, is fulfilling. You know why? Because you didn't let that person down to their face. You told them you'd be there. You didn't have to say no. Right? So, all sin brings temporary joy and pleasure and happiness and satisfaction. And that's what Jesus is saying. But, if you want to receive the reward that your Father in heaven has for you, then give in secret. Now, that doesn't mean you don't write your name on the envelope and take the tax credit because our government has set up a system where that is okay. What it means is you just don't go around bragging. What it means is we don't have different colored pews, and the highest givers sit in the, in the nice pews, right? And then you in the back who don't give much sit in the hard black folding chairs, <laughs> right? That's what it's talking about. We don't create systems where we acknowledge one another, and we don't seek to be acknowledged for our giving, but we give purely because we know that it is going towards the work of the kingdom. That's what he's talking about. So the warning is don't give to receive praise from men. And and can I include, let me me include in that, don't give to think good about yourself. Don't even fall in the trap of praising yourself for how much you give. Because you're a man. I think you fall into that Praises of men, we do individually, but the promise is that God will bless when you give with pure motives. Don't we all want our money to go towards something fruitful? Nobody gives to the four hundred one in their four hundred one k so that they can see their money be lost. You want to see the fruit of it. When we're on vacation and we're struggling because our kids are disobeying, for I, I think it's a guy thing. I don't know, but one of the first things is all the money I've spent on you. Right? Like I'm struggling because I'm not seeing the reward and in the investment of the money. We all want to see investment on our money, a return on the investment of our money. And God will bless us when we invest purely and when we give to the needy and those who are less fortunate. Now, the second thing he says is, the second assumption here, the spe- second, uh, excuse me, second spiritual discipline is praying. Verses 5 through 13, Jesus says, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray. Now, listen, as Jesus is talking to his disciples up on the mountain, I would imagine, I don't think it's too far of a stretch to say that there is Pharisees within earshot of all of this, Like, I think as Jesus is saying this to his disciples, they're looking at the Pharisees. Right? Could it be? And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners. Because listen, everybody knows the Pharisee that's on the street corner praying out loud for all to see. I went to a private high school, and every year, every week in chapel, they'd ask the same kid to pray. And his prayer every week in chapel in front of all of us was, God, thank you that I'm not like the rest of my classmates. Thank you that I love you and that they don't. Thank you that you have blessed me. And I'm like, that was, I'm, I'm not kidding you. And that prayer was praised by the teachers and people leading chapel. That guy apparently never read Matthew chapter six. Yeah, or the teachers. But listen, the assumption is that you pray. The assumption is that we understand that God is a father who wants to commune with his kids. That part of God's blessing and part of God's reward is being present when we talk to him. We watched a movie the other night called Box Trolls. You guys ever seen it? Yeah, whatever. Anyways, one one of the characters in it was a young girl who all she wanted was the attention and affection of her dad. But he was too busy being a socialite constantly neglecting her. And there comes a the point where she meets this boy who's kind of orphaned and, and she tells him what a father should be, all the good things. And you can see in her, because you know the whole picture, she's longing for her dad to love her and talk with her and, and spend time with her and acknowledge her. So finally, this little boy meets her dad and he gets mad. He goes, you said that fathers were like this. And she goes, well, I said that fathers should be like this. Not that they are, that they should be. But we have a Father who wants to commune with His people. So pray. When you pray, don't pray so that people will recognize you for your great prayers or your lengthy prayers or your deep prayers or your, your wordy prayers. But pray with pure motive that God will bless that. You don't even have to pray long prayers because Jesus talks about not, not, not just these mindless rambling. But be intentional with your petitions of God. Pray specifically. The third uh, discipline is that of forgiving. Do you realize that forgiving is a spiritual discipline that Jesus assumes that that we will do? Not selectively, but all the time. Verses 14 through 15, Jesus says, And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites. Excuse me, I'm sorry, verses 14 and 15. For if you forgive others their, trans, their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive you your trespasses. Now listen, we have to understand the context of this. Jesus is not talking to unbelievers. He's not saying you will lose your citizenship. Okay. We have to understand the context and the original grammar. And so let me just read for you the notes from the English, study, English, English Standard Version Study Bible. It says this is that Jesus emphasizes the importance of forgiving others, indicating that there is a direct relationship between having been forgiven by God and the forgiveness that his disciples um, and forgiveness that his disciples of necessity must extend to others. As in verse 12, forgive your trespasses here refers to restoration of personal relationship with God, not initial justification. So what he is saying is Christian, believer. Citizen, because the king has forgiven you and invited him into his kingdom where he is a benevolent king who gives good things to his people, one of those good things is forgiveness. You've experienced forgiveness and inclusion. Therefore, forgive. If you don't forgive, God's hand of blessing will be withheld. Not by you, by him. You understand that? God will intentionally withhold his hand of blessing and favor on our lives as we walk intentionally in unforgiveness. And that's true of any sin. And some of us, listen, we are all this way. We're all stiff necked, hard hearted people. There are times where we know what we're doing is wrong, but we're just going to keep on doing it. And in those times, we don't experience inner peace, there's constant turmoil, right? We get ulcers. We lose weight or we gain weight, depending on which way you tend to do. Right? There's no peace. There's no blessing. Things don't work. That's because the Father's hand of blessing and favor has been removed because you insist on going against His ways. You would rather receive the justice of the world than God's eternal sovereign justice. And really what you're doing is you're rejecting Him as King. A king doesn't bless those who reject his kingship. So the assumption is that we forgive. The warning is that if we don't forgive, God's hand of blessing will be hindered by our sin. The promise is that if we do forgive, God will restore us with himself. And can I tell you quickly, when somebody sins against you, say to them, I forgive you. Don't just look down at your feet and say, oh, it's okay, it's no big deal, didn't really. No. Release pe- especially non-believers. That's part of being distinct. I forgive you. It means a whole lot more than, oh, don't worry about it, forget about it, it's no big deal. I forgive you. It hurt. It mattered. But I forgive you. The last thing we see is that Jesus, the last spiritual discipline is fasting. Does anybody in here know that a part of your regular spiritual life should be fasting? It should be a part of your regular, as much as reading the scripture and praying and gathering together with the saints as a part of your spiritual life, so should fasting be. Now, I'm not saying that you do it in the same regularity as that, but you should have a regular rhythm of fasting. Jesus says in verse eight, uh, 16, And when you fast, when you fast, you know, we've all been, or most of us have been around, if you've been in the church any time, you've been around people who like to fast, and they like to gloat in the fact that they fast more than you and longer than you. And you always know when they're fasting, right? Because what's the matter? Oh, I'm just hungry. I'm tired. I'm fasting, right? Jesus says, don't walk around like that. Don't fast to receive accolades from men. In fact, he says, but when you do fast, in verse 17, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen. Fast in a way so that people don't even see that you're fasting. Now, that doesn't mean if you're fasting food and you sit down at a meal with somebody and they offer you food, it doesn't mean you don't say, you know, I'm not eating right now, I'm I'm fasting. That's okay. Do it in humility and don't just offer it up. Don't say, hey, I can't go to dinner because I'm fasting. Right? Go to dinner, be tempted, have self-control, rely on the Spirit, and walk in humility. God will bless His people when we fast with pure motives. Last week we saw that God isn't into making bad people good. That's not his purpose. But he makes wretched people righteous by transforming their very nature and crediting to them Jesus' perfect righteousness. Now listen, we cannot be okay with doing good deeds in secret unless our hearts have been transformed by the righteousness of Christ. We'll still struggle with it. But because we have God's Spirit empowering us, eventually we will overcome it. So don't believe the lie that it's okay to be apathetic in your life towards God. But embrace the truth and live the truth that the king's message calls his people to engage in his kingdom purposes for the king's glory. If you guys will stand with me, we'll pray. God, I thank you that you are a king that doesn't just love us the moment we're saved and then, and then wait until you can be with us in eternity, but God, you're a God who lives in us and walks with us every day in between. And I thank you, God, that you have given purpose to human existence. Our society is fueled with books and theories on why are we here and What's my purpose? And, and we spend our life trying to figure that out, God. And I thank you that you are a king who clearly, plainly, and powerfully gives purpose to his people. I pray, God, that we would repent and turn from the ways where we do not live for you, God. For the ways, God, where we don't want you to receive the, the glory and the excellencies, God, but we want to be considered excellent. Help us to turn from that, God, and, 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 and be renewed in the joy of Jesus, our King, our sovereign God who reigns. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would empower us, that we may live faithful lives in God's kingdom for the sake of the King. A gracious hand of rest, peace, joy, and blessing be upon you this week. In times of doubt and fear, may God impress upon your heart that Jesus is a good King. In times of temptation and despair, may He remind us that Jesus has made us righteous. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, you are dismissed.